Um, I'm I'm not Cliff McManus. If you came here to hear him preach, uh, I don't know if that's difficult to tell. Um, he is uh, out of town, and so we'll continue to pray for him. And I, I want to give you a little bit of appeal back as to how we came up with uh, the particular sermon topic that I'm going to go through today. In your bulletin, it's it's called Step One, and you'll see why. And a, a part of what I think needs to happen is for uh, for the body to understand what goes through the shepherding process for uh, for the team of pastors who God has entrusted to uh, the care of the flock too. So there are about um, six thousand topics that could be spoken of on a Sunday sermon, and they're all good topics because they all come from the Bible, and every word of the Bible is profitable for the church. And so uh, whenever there's a chance for uh, someone to come in who's not preaching regularly through the, the exposition of a particular book that the pastor's going through, then we have to figure out a way to sort through all 600 or 6,000 topics as to which one to choose. And it's everything from, uh, is it superlapsarianism? Is it infralapsarianism? What does the Bible say about YouTube? Uh, who's better, men or women? Uh, and we, we could do a number of different topics. And so what, what does have to happen, if you have a Bible, uh, and this is not the sermon topic, it's just to, to walk you through what goes through the process. Go through Proverb or turn to Proverbs 27, verse 23. And remember that uh, the word pastor means shepherd because the church is also referred to as the flock of God. Um, now, you don't have wool here, but you are God's flock in the sense that you're precious to God, and God does call certain people to shepherd his people uh, towards him. Proverbs twenty-seven twenty-three says, Know well the condition of your flocks and pay attention to your herds. And so the idea there is whatever whatever craft you have, Pay close attention to whatever it is that is entrusted to your care. And as a pastor, uh, as an elder, the team of pastors and team of elders understand that uh, the treasure of God that's entrusted to the care of the team of elders is none other than the church of God, which consists of you and me and everyone who calls themselves a believer. And understanding the condition of the flock uh, means understanding number one where the where the body is in terms of its spiritual maturity, and also what the different issues are, whether it 's in the universal church as a whole because there are certain things that are more prevalent in the church than others, and uh, also the condition of your particular your particular local body in terms of the, the issues that the culture presents that the body 's having to face, or if there are just certain sin issues that are more prevalent than others because it is a reality that certain Sin issues and certain sin habits are more common and more prevalent than others. They're not any better or worse. They're just more common. And anyone who's been in the ministry for over five years is going to know, whether it's just through interacting with people or formal counseling, that you do tend to hear certain things more than others. Uh, issues like depression, believing in evolution, uh, men or women in sexual purity tend to be, I don't want to say wholesale issues, but they tend to be issues that if you're a pastor and you don't know how to address them, then you're going to be in a whole lot of trouble in your church because about half of your congregation is going to come asking you to address those issues. And if you spent your whole seminary education studying textual criticism and not these issues, then you're going to be in trouble when you go into the pastorate. And so we we look at what the issues are that the body is dealing with, either externally or internally, 
And then we also look at the level of damage that some of those sin issues can have to the body as a whole. Um, and we pick those particular topics to address. Uh, would I preach a sermon from the pulpit on what the Bible says about YouTube? Um, I mean, YouTube's prevalent. Some people are addicted to it. Some people use it for good or for bad. I probably won't. Actually, I won't uh, do that. You can address that in a private conversation. But uh, because it's not, it doesn't affect the body to the same degree that a sin like adultery will. You know, if a young man says, uh, I need some help because I'm, ha- I'm struggling prioritizing work over my commitment to Christ in the church. Sure, that's a sin issue. Sure, we address it. Um, now, are we going to church discipline you for that? Probably not. Actually, no, we, we won't unless it, it really manifests itself in something greater because it doesn't damage the body to the same degree. And that's why Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And as a pastor, you do have to look at which sins are not only more prevalent, but more damaging. All are an offense to God, but some, because of how widespread they are, both in the local church and just in the universal church in general, have to be addressed from a higher level. And so uh, we're talking in our past in the office, and some issues came up and said, and every once in a while, this is what's going to be said amongst the pastors. That should be addressed from the pulpit. That should be addressed from the pulpit. And that should be addressed from the pulpit. And a few weeks ago, Cliff said, I am out of town, so... Can you address this from the pulpit? So I didn't pick this topic on my own, but I do believe in it. So uh, I'm not reading his manuscript. I, I did prepare the message for this one. So And the topic under scope today is TDPC. Just remember that it's, it's an acronym, right? The Discipline of Private Confrontation. And the reason why uh, your sermon title says step one is because that is the very first step of the church discipline process. And so uh, if you are a member at GBF, you understand that this is a church that practices and implements church discipline as the Bible calls us to implement it. And we walk you through the four steps of church discipline from Matthew 18. And so uh, go ahead and turn then from Proverbs to Matthew 18. And let me just read the first step of the church discipline process. And if you want to know, by the way, what the sermon outline is, it's, don't let it confuse you, it's step 1A, step 1B, step 1C, step 1D, step 1E, and step 1Q. Now, not the Q, it's step 1F. Okay, just watching you're paying attention here. So, and that's because I want to make sure that you understand that this is not a six-part church discipline process. It's just everything is encompassed underneath this first step. So whether or not you fulfilled or are fulfilling, we as a church are fulfilling, step one of the church discipline process is determined as to by whether or not we actually follow these six sub-steps, okay? And Matthew 18, 15 says... If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Let me read that again. And ask yourself, is this is this happening? Do you do this quite a bit? Well, hopefully not quite a bit, but do you do this? Do you follow this process or do you short-circuit it? If your brother or sister sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. 
Now, why is this topic so important? And I want you to see the connection between this topic, this step one of church discipline, and the greater theme of the glory of God and the glory of Christ in his church. Because church life is not about any individual person here except for Jesus Christ. The church exists, as Ephesians 3 says, for the glory of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Christ came down to seek and save the lost and came to bring those lost people to build his church, and the price that he paid for the salvation and the edification of his church was none other than his very own life. Husbands, love your wives. This isn't a marriage sermon, but this is for free. Actually, this whole thing's for free, but I'm going to insert this anyway. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So husbands, if you're wondering what it looks like to love your wives, go read through the gospels and get to the crucifixion account and follow that. And your wives are like, yay. Um, but Christ came to seek and save the lost and build his church. And he has entrusted his slaves, his servants, his followers with specific gifts that they are supposed to employ for the edification of the church, because the church brings glory to Christ in its existence and its growth and its pursuit of holiness. And therefore, Christ has called his people to preserve, as you heard in the scripture reading, the unity and the purity of this church. God calls the church to be pure and God calls the church to be united, both the universal church and the manifestation of that in the local church. And you can say that one of the greatest dangers to the purity of the church is false teaching. And that's why we do take... Have you ever been to Sunday school? Do you know which book we uh, we use to address <laughs> certain topics? We use the Bible to keep the church pure. And in fact, in one of the children's church messages not too long ago, I went up there with a cup of coffee and I said, all right, kids, am I ready? Are we ready to start your lesson? And one of the kids said, Raise his hand. No, you're not. And I said, why not? He said, because you need to get a Bible and preach to us. And I said, amen. This is GBF Children's Church. So if you want to know what actually goes on in there, by the way, we do teach the Bible for the sake of the purity of the church because God wants his church to be presented to him, to Christ, without blemish, holy and blameless before him. And God also calls us as believers, you and me alike, leaders and laymen to preserve the unity of the church. And from what I've seen, uh, and from what the Bible also says, but just experientially now, and I've been in three different churches to have observed this, one of the greatest threats to the unity of the church is not doctrinal fallacy, but it's relational fallout. And the reason is, is because as you heard in that passage beforehand, the church is held together by relationships because the body is held together in love. And so when love is gone and when love is missing and you just have a bunch of individual Christians who say they're trying to do the will of God but don't want anything to do with each other, then you don't have a church. And one of the greatest threats or the greatest causes to relational fallout is relational conflict. And we get into conflict all the time. If you've been married, you understand that. It takes about five seconds. All you have to do is breathe and there's conflict. So Christians do have to deal with conflict in a small scale and a larger scale. Talking about the church 
And one of the greatest reasons why relational conflict goes undealt with and therefore causes breaches between people and therefore damages the life of the church is none other than the failure of individuals in the church to privately deal with the sins that have been committed against them. Step one of church discipline is no small step because when you circumvent it, and go straight to step two, three, four, or whatever other step you want to go to. You put the church at risk of being damaged. You put relationships at risk. You put yourself at risk. And Jesus does not want the church to be tampered with. Matthew sixteen eighteen, Jesus says, Upon your confession, Peter, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And I will give you then the keys to the kingdom of heaven. In other words, one of the ways that will ensure that the gates of Hades under the sovereignty of God will not overpower the church is how you, Peter, instruct the church to carry out its ministry. In your hands is the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And so if Christ is building the church, all of a sudden in chapter 18 in Matthew, he says this is how you deal with sin in the church. And Peter and the apostles and the rest of the folks who you train make sure that this is how sin is carried out in this order to ensure the edification of the church. It's no small thing. Relationships are not a small matter. So as a Christian, you have to ask yourself, have you committed yourself to the discipline of privately confronting sin when it is committed against you? Otherwise, if that's not the case, then number one, you are outside the will of God. And number two, you are a threat to the church, especially if this is a habitual practice of your failure to do it. So here we go. Step 1A, step 1B, step 1C, step 1D, step 1E. We can go all the way to Z if you want. Um, but it was supposed to be a topical sermon, but it ended up being, it ended up following just the structure of this one verse. So I think you know now that we can't preach hour-long sermons in a particular verse, right? On a particular word. So here we go. Step 1A. And it's if your brother sins. And so the first step of step 1 is determining the sin's presence. The text says, if your brother sins. In other words, don't confront people if they're not sinning. You have to determine as to whether or not whatever was done, whatever was committed, was actually sin. So this isn't talking about a weakness. This isn't talking about a lack of a spiritual gift. This isn't talking about a preferential issue. This is when a person has violated scripture and has fallen short of God's commandments and has fallen short of the glory of God and are walking astray. And God is looking at that person and saying that person is not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Their lives are not bringing glory to God, either as a habitual thing or something that they did. Therefore, they have missed the mark. They have sinned. Again, not a simple weakness, not a simple shortcoming, not a simple shortcoming. It doesn't mean that every kind of sin at every moment in time has to be addressed in a confrontational way. Proverbs does say, it is the glory of a man to overlook transgression. 
One of the most glorious things, I mean, think about this. You want to be a glorious person? Learn to overlook the sins committed against you. You don't want to have a skin made of cellophane. Every time someone sins against you, your skin pops. Learn to overlook it. But as Galatians 6, 1 says, if anyone is caught in any trespass, in other words, trespass, habitual sin has ensnared a particular person or they've done something inadvertently that was sinful, which happens, by the way, if you read through the Old Testament, there were sacrifices made for people who sinned, but they didn't know they sinned and are walking in a sinful path and they're without understanding. Because we all know that there are times where we sin and it's not, or another person sins, I guess, and you know it's not characteristic of them. And there is a place for grace to overlook those things. We don't walk around as cops here for this in the spiritual sense. And John MacArthur, I think, makes a good point when he says, when Peter gives a follow-up question and says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? The context there, you can argue, is talking about sin that's committed against you. But it does also refer to other larger sins that really could leaven the whole lump. Does that make sense? So you have to, you have to determine... Is this a sin that's worth, is this a sin that's worth bringing up or is it just a preferential issue? Because preferences, whether you like them or not, are not necessarily sinful. You might think they are, but they're not. Okay. You don't like the tie I'm wearing. Great. I don't like it either. I'm from Hawaii. We don't wear ties there. So, but if I don't like your hair, if I don't like the cologne you're wearing, if I don't like the way you talk, there was one time where a pastor said that it wasn't me and it wasn't in our church, so don't worry, you're not under the gun here. This was at a, a counseling conference where a pastor said that. A lady approached him after Sunday school and said, Pastor, I've forgiven you. Oh, why? Because I don't think the way you taught Sunday school was the best format, but I have forgiven you. And he said, so you are saying that you have held something against me that wasn't sinful and have accused me of sin and are saying that I am now free from it. Is that what you're saying? And he goes, you need to be forgiven for doing that. Preferential issues are not sin. Okay, number two, okay, was this a sin issue or we're we're still on 1A here. Was this something that was actually a violation of scripture or something that merely offended you that another person did but didn't violate scripture? Romans 14.10 does say, but you, why do you judge your brother? You might think something is sinful. You might think something is offensive. Does that necessarily make it sin, especially if you don't have scripture to back it up? And you want to be careful that you don't walk around judging people and calling them out for sin when they haven't violated anything about scripture. Now, there are there are places where there was an instance where I was born in the Philippines, and when we moved to the U.S., uh, I, I just had, I just had a, a lot of hair. And um, if you're a mom and you have a ten-year-old son whose head constantly smells, um, you would do what she would do, which is when we moved to the U.S., she got it shaved, and it was a shock. And so, from elementary school all the way up until high school, I had a shaved head and it just became the thing to do because that was the way to keep myself from smelling i guess and uh the day came where i went to i was preparing to go to a missions trip and actually back to the philippines and me thinking in a very 
American Las Vegas way, which is where I went to high school, and it's good to keep your hair short there because it's hot, um, I prepared by shaving at least the sides of my head. Uh, I'm thinking the less hair, the neater I look, the more professional I look. And I didn't have a wife back then, and so I got a hair thinner and thinned the top of my hair as well. Um, she told me later I looked like a troll when she saw the pictures. But anyway, I went to I went to go on the missions trip where I was the guest pastor and the guest speaker. And we're at the seminary, and I'm walking around, and I'm thinking, oh, guys here have, I forgot, guys here have long hair or bushy hair. And then the pastor told me, yeah, um, that, that's actually in our seminary. You're required to have, you're required to have hair of a length where they can't see the, uh, they can't see the connection between your hair and your head. And they said, because people with your haircut are associated with being part of a gang. I'm like, I should have asked beforehand. Okay. <laughs> those things measure those. That's, that's appropriate, right? Again, was this a one-time infraction that a person did? Can you overlook it? Uh, Job 6 talks about that. If a suffering person says something that, that that's inaccurate, that they're not supposed to say, there is a place that their words are just like the wind, and all you need to do is let it go. And the, la- the last thing under this step is you have to determine if you are the right person to confront them based on your own issues in life. Matthew 7, 3, in the same book, Jesus says, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? And he says, you hypocrite. So in other words, this this is the picture. If you're the type of person that's walking around, always complaining about everybody else except for yourself, and everybody always does stuff that's wrong, and you're the only one who does something that's right, and you're always the victim, and they're always the perpetrator, then there's a good chance that you are walking around picking specks out of people's eyes when you have a redwood sequoia forest in yours. So do some work and kill the rainforest and then take your Q-tip and get the speck out of your brother's eye. And that's why Galatians says, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual... You've been walking in the spirit. You help them through. That's 1A. <laughs> if your brother sins. That's a big step. Um, 1B. Approach the sinner proactively. Proactively. And it's the word here. Go. If your brother sins, what do you do? Do you sit and stew? Do you get depressed? What do you do? You go. What does the word go mean? It means, well, go. We teach kids that in school. Green light means go. So when the Bible says go, it means stop. No, it means it means to go. Um, after, obviously, you've worked through the whole framework on step 1A, go. It's a present active imperative. It means you have to do it, and you have to do it Actively, you don't wait for the person to approach you and say, oh, I'm wondering if, did I sin against you? Because I noticed that you've been avoiding me lately. Oh, no, 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 you haven't. Don't worry about it. Are you sure? Well, why do you think that I might be avoiding you? We've, we've seen that too. You've seen that. You've approached someone. You notice that air's a little bit cold between you and them. And they're not making any eye contact with you. They're giving short answers to everything that you ask them. And then you say, is there something wrong? 
between you and me? Oh, well, why would you think that? Well, because of this, 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 and this. Oh, well, do you interpret it that way? Well, take a step back and you follow Proverbs 27.5, which says, better is an open rebuke than love that is concealed. And what is, by the way, what is, what is that called when you don't openly rebuke, but you choose to conceal love? It's called being passive aggressive. You're looking to bite someone without making it look like you're biting them. You either overlook the sin or you proactively confront it. You can't stew like a pot roast and wait for yourself to burn. Because, like we said, the church is made up of relationships that are woven with one another. And so, oh, true or false, you have to be best friends with everybody in the church? No, you don't. Okay, it's false. We don't believe in the whole BFF thing here for everybody. But, true or false, you are called to exhibit genuine affection for everyone in the church. Some people, naturally, this is reality, are just more difficult to deal with than others. But are you called to have genuine affection for your church body as a whole and every person in it? And just so you know as well, ministry events, even planning ministry events from a pastoral end can get really, really difficult and really, really tricky and burdening when you know that your members are not getting along. Which is why, what did Paul tell the Philippian church? As good as a church that they were, please tell these two ladies to get along. Because it affects the whole church. And you have to remember that your emotions are not as important as the health of the church. So once you get past step 1B, and here's, here's the big one. This is where, this is the, this is the Everest of, of the message is this is you approach or confront, and once you approach the sinner privately. He says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault. But here's the key here. In private. The Greek literally says, this is, trust me, it's what it says, you and him only. Mono, only. You and him only. The discipline of private confrontation. It doesn't matter if it's a woman to a woman, a woman to a man, a man to a pastor, a pastor to a pastor, a pastor to a deacon. If someone has sinned against you, you go and approach them privately, you and him, you and her, just the two of you, and let not anyone else know about it. It's as simple as that. There is a situation once... um, I'm not as I'm not as young as I look in the sense of being in ministry. I don't have a beard because I shaved. Um, I know elder means bearded one, but my body can't grow it. So, but there was a situation back in a previous church where I did confront an older man about this because there was something that he had against me, and he ended up going to all of my relationships and bringing it up before he brought it to me. And I spoke with him and said, we are going to deal with this issue, just the two of us. 
And he said, well, you don't understand because I can't really separate myself from a lot of these relationships because what happens to me affects them. And this is the only time I've ever said this to someone two decades older than me. I looked at him and said, then you need to learn how. If you don't know how to separate your private issues with another person from other third-party relationships, then you need to learn how. Someone once said, whichever church you go to, there's drama. Well, drama is caused by this. It's a failure to privately confront because drama by nature is sin gone public. Now, why do we do this? Well, here are some, there are reasons, and they sound reasonable, but they're illegitimate. Why do people fail to approach others in private? And by the way, again, you overlook a transgression if you can. If it's bothering you to the point where you've lost affection for another person, where you've lost trust in another person, where you want to leave the church because of another person, then this needs to happen. What are illegitimate reasons why people gossip? Number one, because people naturally love gossip. Proverbs 18 says that gossip is like a dainty morsel that goes down to the innermost parts of the body. It's really fun to listen to gossip. Dainty morsels, right? Ever walked around Costco and gotten those samples, right? And they, the samples taste better than the actual dishes, right? That's how they market it because they're small and filled with flavor. Now, I teach middle school at, uh, at a local Christian school and if I say, guys, open up to Leviticus, you know, there's so much inertia in terms of getting him to do that. But as soon as I say, hey, guys, guess what I heard about this teacher? What? What is it? Because it's natural. It's fun to hear naturally about the sins of other people. And you have to recognize that about yourself as a fallen human being and resist that temptation. Gossip is just like Doritos. They taste good and they'll kill you. That's for free. I used to work as a personal trainer too. So, um, illegitimate reason number two. You went to another person first because you wanted confirmation that what they did was really wrong. If you need confirmation, you wait till step two. Getting confirmation happens first when you approach the person. Illegitimate reason number three. You need some backup to go with you. You want other people to validate your cause, to be there with you as you confront the person. Because you're afraid of what they might do to you. Now you tell me, I mean, do you need the heavenly host to go approach someone? You need the empowering influence of the Holy Spirit to do it. You don't need your pastors. You don't need your elders. You don't need another person if it's the first time you're approaching somebody. You need you. Filled with the Spirit, with a heart of love and a desire to build up the church for the glory of Christ to confront the other person. Illegitimate reason number four. You need a safe space to vent your emotions before you go approach the other person. It's illegitimate 
for this reason. I understand the need sometimes to get things off your chest, but it's illegitimate because in your effort to unburden yourself and fix your emotions, you are damaging the reputation of another person. And the reputation of that other person is quite frankly more important than you needing a safe space. Philippians 2 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, consider others as more valuable than yourself. Look not out for your own interests, but the interests of others. The reputation of another person has to be of utmost importance. It's, I understand, it can be scary to approach people when they've sinned against you and to bring up their sin. And on the flip side, if you're receiving the gossip, it can feel flattering. Oh, a person approached me to tell me about their issues because they know I can help. You know what that's like? That's like Second Samuel 15 when people had trouble with David and therefore they approached his son, Absalom, about it and told him all the issues they had with David. And what did that cause over time? Permanent rift between father and son. And that's why, and I've actually seen this happen, this proverb that says, a slanderer separates intimate friends. We have seen relationships get destroyed semi-permanently, never to be restored to the place where they need to be or where they once were, because the third party came and gossiped. The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels, and they have a power to separate people and destroy relationships. And when you mess with the relationships in the church, you mess with the structure of the church. Because the church is not made up of a building with programs. It's made up of people who have trusted in Christ and have grafted themselves with one another, knit together in love. Gossip is destructive. And the only thing that there is to say about gossip is don't do it. Keep the sin, if you can, private. 1D. It says, expose, or it says, point out their fault. It's one Greek word, which means to rebuke. Point out their fault. Expose the sin precisely. In other words, this is you actually showing a person in the same way that a math teacher walks his or her student through how it is that they went wrong in the problem, okay? You messed up this. You said 5 plus 5 equals 9, but it equals 10, and that's why I messed up the entire problem for you, right? The integral of x squared is not x third, but it's x third over 3, right? You messed up there. And therefore, right, when you do this problem again, don't do it that way. Do it this way. You're showing them the fault because there's a standard that they missed. And when it says point out their fault, this doesn't mean you just telling them why you don't like them. It means you showing them how it is that their actions or their habits are in violation of Christ's requirements of them from Scripture, which is why it says in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching and rebuke and correction and training in righteousness. And so if you want to be in the place to even be able to expose someone's sins, the scriptures have to be living in you. Then you can show, 
show them according to scripture where they went wrong and what they need to do to make it right. And by the way, by the way, this doesn't excuse gossip by any means, but the truth is, is that there are certain people who inadvertently make themselves a victim of gossip because by their personality, they're just not approachable. And you may be that type of person where every time you're confronted by anybody, you get angry, you throw a tantrum, you get defensive, you throw it back at them, and you start developing a reputation as the kind of guy who whenever he's confronted, he can't take it. Therefore, you make people think, if we want to confront him, we need the angel armies with us. So it is in your best interest. It doesn't excuse gossip, but it is in your best interest as a person to make sure that you develop a discipline of listening to people when they confront you with things that they feel like you did wrong. And that will preserve your reputation in the church and prevent you from becoming a victim of gossip. But back to step 1D, okay? When you do finally confront someone Rebuking, exposing means you have to do it accurately. You can't exaggerate. You can't be imbalanced. You have to show them where it is that they went wrong and don't go any other place than that. And do it in a balanced way, which is why it implies that you've done your own soul searching. Maybe there's something that you did that contributed to it. Maybe someone offended you because you didn't speak up and explain that these things bother you and they didn't know. So do it in a balanced way. Show them where they went wrong. Do it accurately and do it honestly. There was a young man who approached me once and said, I want to know if I should be confronting my roommate about a certain sin issue. And I said, all right, well, so what's the sin issue? Well, you know how the Bible talks about being a one-woman man? Well, these are two single guys. Well, he always seems to have girl's over at the house and he seems to be flirting with all of them. And so I want to confront him and say, hey, you need to be a one-woman man. And uh, this is where you get your spiritual knife and just poke it and open it up. And I finally, after about 20 minutes, said, are you hoping that these girls would pay attention to you? And he said, well, Yeah. So you're jealous. Okay, fine, I admit that that, that's not the issue. The issue is I'm jealous because all the girls who go over to this place pay attention to him and not me. Well, sorry um, if he's more handsome than you. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, Be honest with what you're bringing up because if you try to code it in something else, then you're not going to deal with the issue. Rebuke them and show them where they went wrong. Nothing wrong with being handsome, by the way. I don't know anything about it, but I heard it helps people. Um, my son does know. Uh, so step 1E. Is this killing you, these E's and F's? Um, deal with the sinner patiently. It says, if they listen to you. Now here's what the... I want to take you to another passage in the Bible. Matthew, again... Matthew just has a lot of, I mean, 28 chapters, there's so much in it. Matthew 28, or 21, sorry, 28 through 31, Jesus gives a parable and says, but what do you think? A man has two sons, 
And he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I won't. If you're a parent of a teenager, have you ever heard that? Can you please take out the trash? Not right now. Um, I won't. But afterwards, he regretted it and went, which I'm sure you've seen that happen too. Maybe begrudgingly, right? Mom used to tell that to me. She'd tell me, hey, after every, <laughs> every day of my junior and senior year, after dinner, it was, can you get me a scoop of ice cream? And every single time, I would pound my head on the table and said, why is it always me who has to get you the scoop? And she would laugh and say, because I know you'll always do it. (laughs) And I did. But it said the man came to his second son and said the same thing. He said, I will, sir, but he did not go. So which of the two did the will of his father? Rhetorical question. In other words, there are times where you confront someone and they may react, maybe violently. But then you give it time and you realize, and they may, they may not even admit that you were right, but you give it time and what do you realize? They're actually, they're actually following through with what you've said. And what does that mean? You may not get the credit for it, but they did listen. I had a wife once tell me that, who had a very stubborn husband. And so we said, so how, how, do you, how do you deal with his stubbornness? And she said, I don't know if this is actual wisdom or if this is just, but she said, well, I've learned that I can get him to do the right thing if we're in an argument, if I can make him think that he came up with the idea. I don't know if that's called manipulation, but um, in other words, there are times where when you confront someone about a sin and they react, you might have to meet with them multiple times. There are times where maybe you just need to, have you ever heard this? You need to give them some space. And sometimes space is all they need. In other words, don't jump too quickly. They don't listen to you for the first time and you say, you know what, I'm going to bring a second person in here, I'm going to bring the elder here, and we're going to deal with your sin. After you've talked about it for two minutes, Hold on, right? Hold on. Not every sheep is going to go fall off the cliff here. Just give it some time. And what we've seen, I've seen this in the past where there have been many people who when you confront them, there there are some who when you confront them, I've seen this firsthand, I'm not exaggerating here, they start howling. Literally, they would they would sit down and start howling. I'm thinking, I don't I the Bible didn't tell me how to deal with howling, but but over time they would follow through. And there are also people who, when you confront them, they say, you know what? Thank you so much for confronting me. I I just want to be teachable and we all want to grow here. And so thank you. I'm going to work on those things. And as soon as you turn their back, they stab you. So you have to watch and you have to give it some time. Deal with them patiently. Deal with them patiently. Time is Time is key here. And finally, if they listen to you, if over the course of time after you've privately confronted them and shown them and acknowledged your part in the issue, if you did have a part and they've seen where they've gone wrong and they change, step 1F, last step, is cover the sin permanently. Jesus says, You have won them over. Because this is what happens. 
Why does Jesus say this? Because this is what happens to someone who sins. They breach fellowship with Jesus Christ. They belong to Christ. The church belongs to Christ. When someone sins, they put themselves outside of the protection of Christ. They breach, they break their fellowship. They don't, they don't lose their salvation. They break their fellowship. And your job is to restore them to not just you, but ultimately to Christ. And if they listen, if they repent, even if you get no credit for it, but if they repent and their lives are now in such a way that are pleasing to God, then you have won them over. The sin that Jesus is asking them to address has now been addressed. There is no barrier between Christ and that person. They are won back to him. And if that's the case, then you have no business ever bringing up that sin to remembrance again as a reason to get back at them. It's one time covered and forever covered. They were gained back to their Savior. If someone has asked for forgiveness and repented of their sin, and you say, I have forgiven you, then you don't need to tell anyone else about the transgression. You don't have to go around telling another person, well, you know, I want, I want, you to, I want to tell you what happened with so-and-so between me and, us, me and him today. Well, he sinned, and I confronted him, and it was a really, really bad sin. And they were straying like a mad sheep swimming down the Pacific Ocean. But I put out the safety net and I pulled them in. And therefore, they're restored. I hope you haven't done that. That's, that's self-glorifying. You cover the sin and cover it permanently. Again, why is this so important? Because it has to do with the life of the church. Now, true or false, the church is filled with messy people. Church life is messy, right? Um, at some point, your pastor's hair is going to turn gray or fall off, or both. But the church is also not to be messed with. It is messy, but you don't mess with it. Jesus says, do not ever cause your brother to stumble. How can you tear down what Christ has died for? And so you have to understand then the overall relationship between and the the cause and effect of how well you discipline yourself to fulfill step one of the church discipline process and the long-term effect it can have on the life of the local church for the glory of Jesus Christ and what he did. And when you do that, when you, when we as a church body commit ourselves to this process, the unity of the church is preserved and the building of the church continues and the church grows together into one new man knitted together in love and Jesus Christ is glorified in the life of the church from one generation to the other. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the church. We thank you for Christ who paid his life for our sins, who won us to him to be given to you. We thank you for the wisdom of Scripture which instructs us uh, to deal with sin in the church. We thank you that we don't have to come up with it ourselves or rely on our own culture or our background or even personalities to do it. We thank you for the explicit instruction. And we do pray 
that in all that we do, in particular, our relational endeavors, uh, we pray that we would be in line with your truth, in line with your instruction, and that all that we do would only seek to further the gospel and the growth of the church. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.